Welcome, Watchmen. I am the Paladin Preacher with Peleus Men's Ministry. Let's jump into tonight's topic. Are you ready? Let's begin. Don't you see? The American Standard Translation orders men to triumph over sin, and you call sin ignorance. The King James Translation makes a promise in thou shalt, meaning that men will surely triumph over sin. But the Hebrew word, the word timshel, thou mayest, that gives a choice. It might be the most important word in the world. That says, the way is still open. This is an excerpt from John Steinbeck's East of Eden, published in 1952. Now Lee says these words during his discussion of the Cain and Abel story with Samuel and Adam in chapter 24. He has just revealed to the other men the outcome of the research he did on the meaning of Timshil, the word that God utters to Cain when exiling him to the lands east of Eden. According to one translation of the Bible, God orders Cain to triumph over sin, while according to another, God promises Cain that he will defeat sin. Lee's research in East of Eden, however, has revealed that Timshil means thou mayest, implying that God tells Cain that he has a choice whether or not to overcome sin. Lee sees this idea of free choice over evil, a token of optimism that is central to the human condition. He attempts to convince Adam and Cal of the validity of Timshil, and ultimately succeeds, as Adam gives Cal his blessing, and Cal realizes he himself has the power to overcome his family's legacy of evil. So why don't we, as Christians, annotate our Bibles like we would reading the works of Steinbeck, of Dickinson, Hemingway, or Shakespeare? Sitting in high school and university English class, was clearly about engaging literary text in a way involving research, creative thinking, and striving to understand deeper meanings of the words in the context of the time period and culture, providing color, tone, and texture to the reading. We've also been taught how to do it and why we should do it, but when it comes to reading our Bibles, many of us leave blank margins within our pages. Yes, we tend to highlight and memorize verses, but how often do we pause to analyze specific passages within Scripture? We often gloss over many of the words written emphatically, which cry out for deeper thinking. Oftentimes, I liken this to viewing art, more specifically oil-on-canvas works of art from the greats. For example, the Dutch Golden Age painter Rembrandt Oil on canvas painting in 1633 was called Storm on the Sea of Galilee. It is a depiction of Jesus calming the seas on the Sea of Galilee out of the verses found in Matthew 8:23 through 27 and Mark chapter 4 verses 35 and 41. 
So we'll pick up here in Mark chapter 4, verses 35. And on the same day, when the even was to come, he saith unto them, Let us pass over unto the other side. And then when they had taken him away from the multitude, they took him even as he was in the ship. And there were also with him other little ships. And there arose a great storm of wind, and the waves beat into the ship, so that it was now full. And he was in the hinder part of the ship, meaning Jesus, asleep on a pillow. And they awake him, and say unto him, Master, carest thou not that we perish? And he arose, and rebuked the wind, and said unto the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said unto them, Why are ye so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? And they feared exceedingly, and said unto one another, What manner of a man is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? A layman or an amateur who views this painting in a study book may say, It's a beautiful painting. Wow, it's an incredible work of art. It looks very difficult. Only a master painter could have brought such depiction of life. This is a masterpiece. All of these responses are agreeable and undoubtedly accurate. Yet seeing the painting simply at face value diminishes its depth and does a disservice to the painter. When we grow in our appreciation for art, we begin to study the painter, their country of origin, the historical context from their country, events in their life that impacted their emotions or perspectives, the political climate at the time of their work. We may also identify their schooling or perhaps their mentoring Who developed this individual, and how was their artistic expression developed over time? Quote, Rembrandt's most striking narrative painting in America, Christ in the Storm of the Sea of Galilee, is also his only painted seascape. Dated 1633, it was made up of shortly thereafter, Rembrandt moved to Amsterdam from his native town Leiden when he was establishing himself as the city's leading painter of portraits and historical subjects. The dated rendering of the scene, the figure's varied expressions, the relatively polished brushwork, and the bright coloring are characteristic of Rembrandt's early style. 18th century critics like Arnold Hobrocken often preferred this early period to Rembrandt's later, broader, and less descriptive manner. The biblical scene pitches nature against human frailty, both physical and spiritual. The panic-stricken disciples struggle against a sudden storm and fight to regain control of their fishing boat as a huge wave crashes over its bow, ripping the sail and drawing the craft perilously close to the rocks in the left foreground. One of the disciples succumbs to the sea's violence by vomiting over the side. Amidst this chaos, only Christ at the right remains calm, like the eye of the storm. 
Awakened by the disciples' desperate plea for help, he rebukes them. Why are ye so fearful, O ye of little faith? And then rises to calm the fury of the wind and waves. Nature's upheaval is both cause and metaphor for the terror that grips the disciples, magnifying the emotional turbulence and thus the image's dramatic impact. The painting showcases the young Rembrandt's ability not only to represent a sacred history, but also to seize their attention and immerse us in an unfolding pictorial drama. For greatest immediacy, he depicted the event as if it were a contemporary scene of a fishing boat menaced by a storm. The spectacle of darkness and light, formed by the churning seas and blackening sky, immediately attracts our attention. We then become caught up in the disciples' terrified responses, each meticulously characterized to encourage and sustain prolonged, empathetic looking. Only one figure looks directly out at us as he steadies himself by grasping a rope and holds on to his cap. His face seems familiar from Rembrandt's self-portraits. And as his gaze fixes on ours, we recognize that we have become imaginative participants in the painter's vivid dramatization of a disaster Christ is about to avert. This was a commentary by Michael Zell on Christ in the storm of the Sea of Galilee in the eye of the beholder. By Rembrandt. Who are the persons, places, or things in the encounter? The level of research and detail is seemingly endless. In order to understand the who, what, when, and where, and why, a piece of art is created. The painstaking detail of exploration into the mind and subject matter are what is most agreeable to bring art to life. In parallel with this concept of art, what better teacher than our Lord in heaven, who in and of himself gave us art? Arguably, anybody who has spent much time in Yosemite National Park, the Great Barrier Reef, watching a simple yet stunning sunset, or gazing up at the stars in the night sky could attest. God surrounded us with magnificent masterpieces so we could experience his creation of awe and beauty, just as it says in Genesis. And God says, I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on earth. Genesis chapter 9, verses 13 through 16. I found a commentary by Matthew Henry regarding verses 12 through 17. Quote, 
the articles of agreement among men are usually sealed, that the covenants may be the more solemn, and the performances of the covenants are more sure, to mutual satisfaction. God, therefore, being willing more abundantly to show the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsels, has confirmed his covenant by a seal, which makes the foundations we build on stand sure. The seal of this covenant of nature was natural enough. It was the rainbow, which it is likely was seen in the clouds before, when second causes concurred, but was never a seal of the covenant until now, that it was made so by a divine institution. Now concerning this seal of the covenant, observe number one. This seal is affixed with the repeated assurances of the truth of that, God, of that promise which was designed to be the ratification. I do set my bow in the cloud, verse 23. Nay, as if the eternal mind needed a memorandum, I will look upon it, that I may remember the everlasting covenant, verse 16. Thus, here is line upon line, that we might have sure and strong consolation, who have laid hold of this hope. Number two, the rainbow appears when the clouds are most disposed to wet, and returns after the rain, when we have most reason to fear the rain prevailing. Then God shows his seal of the promise that it shall not prevail. Thus God obviates our fears with such encouragements as are both suitable and seasonable. Number three, the thicker the cloud, the brighter the bow in the cloud. Thus, as a threatening affliction abound, encouraging consolations much more abound. The rainbow appears when one part of the sky is clear, which intimates mercy remembered in the midst of wrath. And the clouds are hemmed as it were with the rainbow, that they may not overspread the heavens, for the bow is colored rain for the edges of a cloud gilded. Number five. The rainbow is the reflection of the beams of the sun, which intimates that all the glory and significancy of the seals of the covenant are derived from Christ, the Son of Righteousness, who is also described with a rainbow about his throne, Revelations 4.3 and a rainbow upon his head, Revelations 10.1, which intimates not only his majesty, but his mediatorship. Number six, the rainbow has fiery colors in it to signify that though God will not again drown the world, yet when the mystery of God shall be finished, the world shall be consumed by fire. Number seven, a bow bespeaks terror, but this bow has neither string nor arrow, as the bow obtained against the persecutors has, Psalm 712, Psalm 713, and a bow alone will do little execution. It is a bow, but it is directed upwards, not towards the earth, for the seals of the covenant were intended to comfort, not to terrify. Number eight, as God looks upon the bow, that he may remember the covenant, so should we, that we may also be ever mindful of the covenant with faith and thankfulness.
end quote. These iconic stories in the Bible typically preached about are, if you will, capture unique paintings of moments in history. For example, the woman at the well, the Last Supper, Moses and the burning bush, Abraham becoming the father of nations, and Jonah and the whale, among others. All have been recounted, taught, and studied, and preached backwards and forwards, about the lessons and teachings from God's Word, all applicable without recourse and with no intention of my own to detract from the teachings of those who came before me. What I aim to show is in an effort to teach the Word of God, sadly many of us fall short in teaching God's Word properly. All wisdom and understanding comes from the Lord and it's by His grace we recall all forms of history, including geography, archaeology, topography, natural resources, native commodities, economics, geopolitical landscapes, or natural disasters. Even tragedy in our humanly efforts to teach God's Word with the assistance of the Holy Spirit. I do believe, however, our approach and technique can and should be improved with the guidance of the Holy Spirit. In effect, we should use the similar level of investigation when reading the Bible as we do in analyzing art or for the purposes of an archaeological discovery. In my attempt to share with you the level of detail at which I believe we should try to investigate the Bible, the following is a true story of how an unlikely archaeological discovery provided years and years of countless and extensive scientific study surrounding who is now being called Europe's oldest celebrity. Beginning with the circumstances leading to the find, on September 19, 1991, German holidaymakers Erika and Helmut Simon discovered a human corpse during a mountain hike only his upper body was protruding from the ice. The Simons reported the find to the landlord of the Simulian Mountain Refuge, who contacted the Austrian police as well as the Italian Carabinieri. Because the site of the find was situated on the border between two countries, it was assumed that the man was unfortunate victim of a mountaineering accident. The following day, an initial attempt was made to recover the body, but the rescuers were unable to free the dead man from the ice, and the endeavor was abandoned due to bad weather. Only his axe was taken down to the valley, and attempts to recover the following day, September 21st, a further attempt at recovery failed because no helicopter was available. The same day, the landlord of the Simulian Mountain Refuge Marcus Perpomer visited the site to cover the body with a plastic sheet. The famous South Tyrolean mountaineers Hans Kammerlander and Reinhold Messiner also arrived the same day to take a look at the leather clothing and the birch bark containers. Perpomer showed them a sketch of the axe, prompting Messiner to be the first to suspect that the corpse was very old. An archaeologic sensation 
Conrad Spindler, an expert in pre- and early history at Innsbruck University, was finally called in on September 24th. He promptly estimated the mummy's age to be at least 4,000 years old. As the corpse had already started to decompose, it was placed in a cold cell that simulated glacier conditions. Now some information on the discovery site. The discovery site itself was located at 3,210 meters above sea level, below the Fennel Peak. The corpse lay in a 3 by 7 meter wide gully and was thus protected from the destructive forces of the moving glacier. The rocky gully was probably free of ice when the body died there. Subsequently, he must have been covered by snow and glacier ice. When the mummy was found in 1991, the ice had melted considerably due to the warm summer. And this is why his upper body was clearly visible protruding from the meltwater. Today, a large stone pyramid stands near the discovery site to commemorate this fortuitous archaeological find. The archaeological excavations during the first scientific inspection on September 25, 1991, the quiver and its contents were actually recovered. During further excavations in October, the string, hide remnants, birch bark, and a piece of grass mat were unearthed, but the area couldn't be examined systematically until July and August of 1992. Archaeologists delved into the ice for the first time, removing snow and ice with steam blowers. The well-preserved bearskin cap was found at this point. Now, before we learn more about this mysterious individual, let's first do a brief overview of how an archaeological dig site is developed and the logistics surrounding the dig. Typically, when an excavation site is determined, it is first surveyed and then measured, essentially framing the area in which to uncover. Once a target area of the landscape is agreed upon, the large frame of the dig site is divided up into multiple smaller squares, dividing the entire target area into smaller, more workable areas for smaller teams assigned to a specific square. One person is assigned as the square leader, and they decide how the square should be excavated. The proper etiquette of excavating a square includes keeping the square perfectly level as you're digging and keep the sides of the square completely straight as to keep artifacts intact. This is performed because the agreed upon methodology also says when performing a dig, you are causing catastrophic damage to the identified area regardless of our careful consideration of the excavation. Because it was perfectly preserved in the earth and any disruption to the target area by humans is disrupting the preservation. Thus great care is taken in minimizing the disruption at all causes in a controlled form of destruction. It's the exact opposite of what Hollywood taught us in Indiana Jones. So now that we understand a little bit of the context around the archaeological discovery, I think we should go beyond the typical excavation 
due to the advances in the forensics and technology in autopsies and talk a little bit about what happened after they brought him back to a controlled environment where they could really do some serious testing. The scientists and archaeologists can gather additional site data in a painstaking detail now that they have him back in a controlled environment. So after 25 years, scientists are finally getting answers to some of the most hidden mysteries surrounding this discovery. The brown-eyed, gap-toothed, tattooed man most likely spent his 40-odd years farming and herding and was probably suffering from a painful stomachache at the time that he died a quick, albeit probably violent, death in the Utsal Alps. During the excavation of the site where the mummy, now nicknamed Utsi because of the Utsal Alps, was found among the frozen remnants on and around the mummified body, included a hide coat, skin leggings, fur hat, hay stuffed shoes, and even though the level of decomposition over the thousands of years is substantial, the ice and permafrost preserved enough evidence of the types of leather researchers have been able to unambiguously identify the specific animal species for the animal skins. This helps scientists determine which animals were chosen during ancient clothing production and if the animals were sourced domestically or if they were wild, indigenous or imported from foreign lands. Through this forensic science, they can gain multiple unique insights into the human past. Was the clothing worn purely for utility? Or did it reflect the social status of the wearer? Were animal skins selected solely due to their availability, or were certain types of leathers and furs prized for specific qualities? Researchers were able to capture ancient DNA markers in nine samples of leather and fur from different articles of the Iceman's clothing. According to their study, published today in Scientific Reports, Utsi's attire choices were very selective and pragmatic. They confirmed that Utsi's leather loincloth and hide coat were haphazardly stitched from sheepskin. The genetic analysis revealed that the sheep species sampled is closer to the modern domestic European sheep than to their wild cousins, and that the articles were fashioned from the skins of at least four different types of animals. This analysis showed that part of Utsi's coat was also made from domesticated goat, belonging to a mitochondrial haplogroup. A mitochondrial haplogroup is a genetic population that shares a common female ancestor. So this goat still roams the hills and valleys of Central Europe today. Now, while Utsi likely lived a life of farming and herding, he may have also hunted and trapped wild animals in his alpine environment. Genetic analysis shows that his quiver was made from wild roe deer, while his fur hat was fashioned from a genetic lineage of brown bear still seen in the region today. Moreover, the tissues, bones, organs, DNA, 
environmental particulates and chemicals found on the body also draw conclusions regarding the state of the mummy's health and integration with his surroundings. Based on the osteons, which are functional units of bone, and Utsi's femur bone, scientists believe he was approximately 45 years old. He was about average height, he was about average weight for the population of the time, and for the location. From the few areas where the hair was preserved on the body, they determined he had dark, medium-long hair, which he probably wore loosely. They found trace amounts of arsenic in his hair, which led scientists to believe that he was present where heavy metal ores were smelted. They found parasites and pathogens on the mummy's body, which included two human fleas found on his clothing. Scientists found the oldest evidence of Lyme disease. Now, Lyme disease is an infectious disease that's usually carried by ticks. But in Utsi's case, in his DNA results, they found evidence that he was genetically predisposed to cardiovascular diseases as well as Lyme disease, which came in the form of arteriocellulosis. They say he was very likely lactose intolerant, <clears throat> and they even verified his blood type as O positive. Scientists also found eggs of whipworm, which is an intestinal parasite, in his digestive tract. Among the incredible discoveries around his body that had to do with his teeth, bones and joints, his previous injuries, etc., scientists have concluded the time of year he died based on the analysis of pollen and maple leaves in the mummy's birch bark containers, which would allow botanists to narrow down the time of his death to approximately early summer. As we read more about the discoveries of Utsi and the forensic evidence preserved over thousands of years, we uncover a wealth of knowledge about incredibly detailed facets of this ancient man's life. In many ways, we are able to understand his life even more intimately through science than he would have ever known himself. Now, you may be wondering, how does understanding art and the process by which archaeology is conducted translate to helping us relate to studying God's Word and our topic for this evening, which is preparation? Well, I believe John Calvin may have summed it up in his writings, The Institutes of Christian Religion, when he quoted St. Augustine. St. Augustine said, quote, There is no good will in man unless it is prepared by the Lord, not but that we ought to will and to run, but because God works in us both the one and the other. Preparation by God is the key to fulfillment of our transition into his calling. Therefore, we must investigate how persons were prepared by the Lord to understand how they performed when God called them to service. I will be making the assumption we've often heard and heard the story taught of David and Goliath. Often repeated approaches are taken while teaching the key facts and core lessons regarding stories in this particular story, 
which are held in such high importance among the Christian world. So let me ask you, what do you think of when you hear David and Goliath mentioned? A young man who was faithful to God, a boy who had no fear, possibly a teenager standing up to unsurmountable odds, a kid ill-prepared, but God had worked a miracle through him. All of these are partial to the truth, but is it possible we are focusing on the wrong aspects of this story? As we begin to pull back the layers of one of the most preached about and written about stories in Scripture, we may uncover more deeper meanings compared to the typical Sunday service. If we only account for the written portion, that brief slice of time written in the Bible as understanding the whole story, I believe we strip God of the full credit he truly deserves. If God were the coach of a Super Bowl championship football team, we could overlook the months of practice, the four-season games, the 16 regular-season games, the three playoff games, and simply expect the team to win because of a miracle. But it would disenfranchise the blood, the sweat, and tears of the practice, the drilling, the constant training, the film analysis, the play calling, the play writing leading up to the Super Bowl. Why then does the church, more often than not, completely gloss over the time and preparation that went into these key Christ followers in the Bible? Before directly diving into David's story, I'd like to first take a moment to talk about a cultural phenomenon. That is the moment of glory. Since 1863, there have only been 3,505 members of this group to date, of which only 74 are living as of this writing. More than 700 members have been immigrants who have distinguished themselves by their actions, granting them access to this elite group. Now you may be asking, who is this group? If you said Congressional Medal of Honor recipients, you are correct. According to the Congressional Medal of Honor Society, these figures reflect the total number of medals of honor awarded. 19 men received a second award. 14 of these men received two separate medals for two separate actions. Five received both the Navy and the Army Medals of Honor for the same action. This is according to the Medal of Honor Society as of 2019. You might also be asking, what does this have to do with David and Goliath? The connection is in the preparation. Preparation which led to the moment where the Medal of Honor recipients distinguished themselves by their gallantry in action and other seamen-like qualities during the present war above and beyond the call of duty. In 2012, Army Captain Florent Grilberg was honored at the White House as a recipient of the Congressional Medal of Honor for his actions while working a security detail in Afghanistan. Captain Grilberg 
jumped on a man wearing a suicide vest to dampen the detonation of the blast. He was attempting to prevent the death of his team members by sacrificing himself in the line of duty. The attack killed four men in the patrol and wounded many others. Groberg's left calf was blown away and he also suffered traumatic brain injuries. The following is a statement from Captain Groberg made after receiving his Medal of Honor. Quote, You know it's more than the medal. I'm receiving an award for actions that resulted in four men not coming home. And that's the tough part. And I don't believe I deserve the medal because I believe I acted like any soldier would in that situation. I was the closest man to the threat and I had to react to that threat. That's what we're trained to do. That's what we believe in doing. That's the mentality and our mindset that is necessary to go serve your country in hostile environments. But in this case, I received the Medal of Honor for actions on my worst day, on the worst day of my life. And so I didn't want it, but I realized the Medal of Honor doesn't belong to me. Absolutely not. It's a symbol, and in this case, it's specifically representing those four men. Commander Sergeant Griffin, Major Gray, Major Kennedy, and Raji Abdel Fattah, and their family. So I decided in my own head that I would accept this medal with the idea that I would be a courier and I would earn the right to wear it every single day by my actions and in my life. And I just hope that one day I get the opportunity to go meet my friends in heaven. And they have a beer waiting for me. And they say, you did it all right. I think it's difficult for us as a society to comprehend that if you ask many of these recipients of Medal of Honors, they will probably tell you in a similar fashion what they did wasn't extraordinary. They were doing exactly what they were trained to do at the very moment they were called into action. They were in the wrong place at the right time, and any one of their team members would have done the exact same thing for them if they put it in their position. Now in their book, By Honor Bound, Two Navy Seals, The Medal of Honor, and A Story of Extraordinary Courage, authors Tom Norris and Mike Thornton share their first-hand accounts of how their stories, and others like them, found themselves surrounded by darkness, insurmountable challenges, yet their training and their preparation, and, might I add, by God's love and grace, carried them through and out the other side. Quote, In April of 1972, SEAL Lieutenant Tom Norris risked his life in an unprecedented ground rescue of two American airmen who were shot down behind enemy lines in North Vietnam, a feat for which he would be awarded the Medal of Honor, an award that represents the pinnacle of heroism and courage. Just six months later, Norris was sent on a dangerous, 
special reconnaissance mission that would take his team deep into enemy territory. On that mission, they engaged a vastly superior force. In the running gun battle that ensued, Lieutenant Norris was severely wounded. A bullet entered his left eye and exited the left side of his head. SEAL Petty Officer Mike Thornton, under heavy fire, fought his way back onto the North Vietnamese beach to rescue his officer. This was the first time Tom and Mike had been on a combat mission together. Mike's act of courage and loyalty marks the only time in modern history that the Medal of Honor has been awarded in a combat action where one recipient received the Medal of Honor for saving the life of another. By Honor Bound is the story of Tom Norris and Mike Thornton, two living American heroes who grew up very differently, entered military service and the Navy SEAL teams for vastly different reasons, and were thrown together for a single combat mission a mission that would define their lives from that day forward, end quote. And this ties back into our topic tonight, because I believe the real story lies in the past, the history leading up to the moment God calls us into his divine plan. The plan is to look at David's story and eventually come to the same conclusion. In the past, we have overlooked what God has planned in preparation for his purpose. We miss the true essence of the stories in the Bible because we go straight to the moment of glory. As we continue in this series on preparation, I believe you will better understand some of the characteristics and characters in the Bible and understand how God prepared them for the moment of His calling into action. I pray as we continue on that the Holy Spirit will reveal to you the preparation in your life, all of the moments that led up from your struggle, your brokenness, your turmoil, which helped strengthen you and shape you into the person you are today. And ask yourself, have you been preparing for God's call to action? Father God, I lift you up. Holy Spirit, we're grateful that you have been present in this place. We're so grateful that you have prepared us in our life in the past, that you have formed us like the clay in the potter's hands. You will continue to form us, and you will continue to mold us in the way that you want us to go, Lord. We may deviate from that path, but you will always always bring us back to you. Thank you for these Medal of Honor recipients. Thank you for our men and women in the armed services, fighting for our country, Lord. We are so grateful for them, and we know that their past experiences were preparation for your kingdom calling in their life. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would touch each and every one of these listeners, Lord. Give them the words of wisdom that you want to speak into their life. Help them acknowledge and realize the preparation that you have uniquely given them for your kingdom calling. We thank you, Jesus, 
Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, as we forgive those who have debts against us. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Your name be praised. The Lord of heaven's armies, the King of glory, Yahweh. Amen.